Welcome back to Is It Horror? This is Season 3, Episode 4, The Shining. I'm Brianna. I'm Joe. I'm Matt. And I am Steve. And today we are joined by our special guests, Hannah and Matt Hannah from Horror Hour with the Hannahs. Welcome to Is It Horror? Thank you for having us. We are excited to be here. Hi, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, for our audience that may not be familiar with your show, can you tell us a little bit about what you do over on Horror Hour with the Hannahs? Yeah. um, So like we said, I'm Hannah. And I'm Matt Hannah. And we are a newly married couple that, you know, we love horror movies. So we have our podcast where we discuss all your favorites. We try and keep plot synopsis to a minimum and really focus instead about like what elements of the films that we cover are effective, what's not effective, and ultimately what the film means. So we definitely try and be more analysis focused. One of our favorite segments we do is a 15 second summary for every episode which kind of ends up being a little game showy on our end (laughs) and um another is the hannah hyde count and scream count which is i'm a huge scaredy cat so we kind of keep a running tally of how many times i hide and scream which feels to me like the true test of how scary a movie is we we try to be a good mix of like let's have some intellectual conversations about the themes of these films and like how the form of the film uh supports those themes but then also, shit gets goofy pretty quick, so it's nice and free form. Uh, we like to have fun, so take a listen if you want. We're all over the place, right? Yep. Spotify, Apple, YouTube, Amazon, iHeartRadio somehow. I don't know. Wherever you, wherever <laughs> you can look. We're on it. I don't know how, but... <laughs> yeah, I get that all the time. I look at our stats, and it'll say, oh, somebody listened to you on this, and I'm like, I had no idea we were over there. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, like, how did I do that? <laughs> Gotta love those RSS feeds. Uh, I really do. I, I like your analysis a lot. I really like the 15 second synopses. I sometimes think about like, oh, what would I say for some of these when I'm listening to your episodes? So I, yeah, I really enjoy you guys talking about movies. So definitely check them out if you haven't listened to them before. It's a great show. Thank you. And we're so excited to have you guys on too. So coming I'm soon. I am looking forward to it. <laughs> And then uh, for our show, for anyone that hasn't joined us before, each episode we analyze a piece of media, usually a movie whose horror status is debatable. We look at the creator's intent, audience reception, and the content of the media all in an effort to better define the horror genre. If you agree with our take, that's awesome. If you don't, that's awesome too. As always, horror is a diverse genre and all are welcome. But before we get into the film, we're going to go to Joe's Get to Know You Corner. Joe... All right, welcome to the corner. Uh, talking about The Shining today. Uh, so what that made me think about was, what is the coolest, most unique hotel that you guys have ever stayed at, or is there like a really cool or unique hotel that you want to stay at? I would say we normally do pretty cheap accommodations when we travel because we like to go to like national parks and stuff. So I would honestly say like camping outside Zion National Park on a (laughs) river with like the mountains in the background, like not a cool hotel, but a really cool place to sleep. I know Matt has like an actual hotel. Yeah, that is that is like the best best type of hotel. But we stayed at the uh, Gaylord Hotel, which is like a famous hotel outside of D.C., for some oh, like okay. winter event and yeah that was they have cool. like this winter event called ice where they like make a bunch of ice sculptures that are themed for like a certain movie every year so when we went they were it was like 
rooms and rooms of interactive ice sculptures themed to the Grinch, which was really cool. And they do like a ton of like Christmas events in the hotel and light shows. But I think ultimately what I want to go to would be like one of the treehouse like Airbnbs or oh, hotels. True. Those look so oh, okay. nice and relaxing. But yeah, that's our answer. <laughs> Very cool. Well, this was a tough one for me because as we all know, I am the biggest introvert on the planet and I sleep like absolute crap in hotels. So I don't really have a lot of experience with it. However, if I had to lay awake and toss and turn in a hotel, I would definitely want it to be someplace maybe a little bit spooky, definitely a lot historical. So I narrowed it down to three and I think that it's a toss up between the Hotel Del Coronado in California, um, the Jekyll Island Club resort in Georgia or the Harry Packer mansion in here in Pennsylvania. That's so cool. Like there's so many things that like I, I'm learning so much and like adding, need to add things to my list. I guess there's, I haven't heard of most of these, but now I need to go check them out. <laughs> um, for me, uh, growing up in like a landlocked state, one, like, I don't know if I have one specific one, but I, I love uh, staying at places that are like on the coast. Uh, so I've stayed at like a couple places in Oregon that like, you know, you open the windows and you can just hear the waves rolling. I I always love that. And like those treehouse ones that you guys mentioned, I think would be awesome. Uh, the other one that like always kind of fascinates me, and I don't know if I'd actually want to stay there, but it's like those ones that I don't even know exactly where they are. I've just seen pictures of them where like the hotel room is like underwater in like an enclosed like Ooh. fish tank <laughs> bowl thing. Um, so I think those, that'd be really interesting, but I, I I'm, I'm not sure if I could bring myself to do it or not. <laughs> that would be so cool, but a little scary. Yeah. 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 Uh, so for me, I guess there's two. So, uh, I haven't really stayed any, like anywhere specifically that interesting, but we, my brother and I went on a trip to Pittsburgh uh, to go see specifically like Dawn of the Dead and Night of the Living Dead uh, sites related to the filming of both of those movies. And we got yeah, this we really did. sick Airbnb that was, I don't know, I didn't really even like plan it that well, but it was just ended up having a really nice view of the city and the river. And uh, that was really cool. So that was a really nice Airbnb, uh, and you guys obviously know about Pittsburgh stuff. Hey, so. we love Pittsburgh. I have a soft spot for Pittsburgh because I used to meet my long-distance girlfriend, who's not long-distance anymore, but we used to meet in Pittsburgh halfway a lot. So I've been there a It's lot. a romantic city. Yeah, <laughs> it is sure a really is. pretty city. <laughs> my mom actually lives 20 minutes away from the uh, the cemetery where they filmed Night of the Living Dead. So Evan City I haven't cemetery. been there. Evan City Cemetery, yep, 20 minutes Oh, nice. And so I probably grew up like 30 minutes from it. We should go there next time we visit. Yes, you should. <laughs> so there's that. And then uh, also one that I want to stay at is also uh, in Pittsburgh area. I guess we found out that some guy has restored like the the oh, house yeah. from... Uh, Silence from of Silence Lambs. of the Lambs, and he had like he even had like Tom Savini's crew like recreate the well on in the basement of the house and stuff to like the scale and size of the movie. Uh, I looked online though; it's 
pretty expensive to stay there, but it would be really cool to do that at some point. Buffalo Bill's house. That is the coolest thing I've heard. <laughs> Fun fact, I actually graduated in the building where they filmed like the cage. Oh, oh that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Soldiers and Sailors Hall or whatever we call yep, it. Yep, yeah. that's also in Pittsburgh. It's on our campus. So many cool things in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Well, they, they show the movie there every year. Yeah, for Halloween. It's so fun. For me, um, my favorite, most unique hotel experience. I know I feel bad now that like, Matt, you're all like, oh, the brother's trip we took. That's the best one. I'm like, yeah, that was pretty cool. But my favorite one, you weren't there. <laughs> but... Uh... The, the one I'm thinking of, though, was very apt for this because I actually stayed in the Timberline Lodge that they modeled at least the exteriors of the Overlook Hotel in this film after. And that was just such a fun trip to kind of see what the exterior actually looks like and trying to look for any points that were familiar and then going around all the interior, which is nothing like anything in the movie. Um, I, I have a few pictures in that I'll probably have by the time you listen to this you'll have seen some of those on the instagram during the past week but that was really fun and uh there's at least a couple other hotels that are shining relating related that i really want to visit like the stanley hotel that stephen king stayed at that inspired the shining and then the uh i will i'm sure mispronounce this the awani hotel which the interiors for kubrick shining were modeled after so I'd like to go to those places at some point. So we'll see if I can ever make it there. Now that those are, yeah, like I said, those are all really cool. I now I've got a long list of places I need to go check out. Uh, but yeah, thanks for joining us in the corner. And then of course, if you are listening to this, you already know that we are covering for this episode the 1980 movie The Shining that is directed by Stanley Kubrick and of course his other movies he's done is 2001 A Space Odyssey, A Clockwork Orange, Full Metal Jacket, Dr. Strangelove, Eyes Wide Shut and many others those are more of the modern ones and uh, I guess one of the things that's a little bit interesting about this too and we'll get into a little bit but just that Kubrick when he was making this film when he got the rights he insisted on having the ability to kind of change whatever he wanted about the novel to be able to put together his film, which you can kind of see, and we'll talk about a little bit more later. As far as writers go, he and Diane Johnson co-wrote this film. He had originally really enjoyed Diane Johnson's novel, The Shadow Knows. So she is a novelist as well as an English professor. And uh, so she did The Shadow Knows, Fair Game, Burning, a lot of other novels, but particularly The Shadow Knows is the one that Stanley Kubrick was interested in because he was thinking about adapting that but then decided to go with The Shining but still brought Diane Johnson in to help write the screenplay. For the back of the box description for the film, Jack Torrance becomes winter caretaker at an isolated over at the isolated Overlook Hotel in Colorado hoping to cure his writer's block. He settles in along with his wife Wendy and his son Danny who is plagued by psychic premonitions. As Jack's writing goes nowhere and Danny's visions become more disturbing, Jack discovers the hotel's dark secrets and begins to unravel into a homicidal maniac hellbent on terrorizing his family. So as far as the intense side of things, there is quite a bit of documentation out there from people around Kubrick and from Kubrick himself saying that after working on Barry Lyndon that he was looking to do a horror project. Uh, I do have one particular quote 
where he had an interview with the El Pais, Pais newspaper. There's another mispronunciation for this episode. Um, so could I get someone to read that quote number one from Kubrick in the intent section there? So the first quote is, it was the first time that I had read to the Oops, let's try that again. It was the first time that I had read to the end a novel that was sent to me with a view to a possible film adaptation. I was absorbed in its reading, and it seemed to me that its plot, ideas, and structure were much more imaginative than usual in the horror genre. I thought a, I thought that a great movie would come from there. So it's not quite a smoking gun quote to say, like him saying, like, The Shining's a horror movie, but at least he was thinking about the novel in terms of horror and thinking about the kind of movie that he could design based off of that. Uh, like I said, there are other quotes that exist out there, too, talking about there's a lot of people that worked on it that talked about the genre with it. So it's at least fairly clear that Kubrick was thinking of this as a horror film when putting it together. And then uh, we have another quote from his collaborator, Diane Johnson, who helped in co-writing it, who um, I think this quote's interesting, but it doesn't really have to do with genre. If anybody would be up for reading that second quote. It says, Diane Johnson from Post Magazine, 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 Magazine said, Among Us, The Shining, the novel, is not part of great literature. It is scary, it is effective, and it works, without further ado, but it is precisely interesting to see how a very bad book can also be very effective. It's quite pretentious, but it is also true that one has less scruples when destroying it. One is aware that a great work of art is not being destroyed. I don't know if I agree with that one, Diane. <laughs> <laughs> this quote makes me mad. I giggled, like, out loud when I read this. <laughs> I'm a King fan, so I'm upset. <laughs> yeah. And I've seen more recent interviews with her. Her opinion on it has softened slightly, but not much. She still doesn't think much of King, doesn't think much of his work. I can't help but think a little bit of it as sour grapes because Kubrick chose to adapt The Shining rather than her novel. Um, but, you know, I don't have anything to go with off of that other than, I guess, wanting to be defensive of King. So anyway, there's at least some idea of what they were thinking. I will be defensive and say that like it, like Stephen King's It, is great American literature. The Shining I've read, not as good as It, but like, come on, King's up there in the rafters and it upsets me that uh should say it. <laughs> I think we all just want to fight Diane. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And like, oh, man, I, I love The Shining. I love Dr. Sleep. I love the Dark Tower series. It is an amazing book as well. Just so many good things. It just, yeah, it sounds like a lot of sour grapes. Diane, if you're listening, Steve's in your walls. <laughs> <laughs> you better hope I stay there. So watch your mouth. <laughs> And then as far as audience reception for The Shining, uh, so we're looking again at meta tags for various streaming services and how they chose to label it. Uh, you have six of them labeling it as horror, three labeling it as drama, uh, one labeling it as cerebral, one is ominous, one is thriller, one is suspense. But uh, for each of these, everyone at least included the label of horror but they might have had other labels that went along with it. So at least most streaming services were putting it towards that that we could find. 
Uh, the other thing too is we'll usually check and look at Google and Wikipedia search trends to see if there's a bump in searches for the film every October, which can indicate that people think of it as a horror film. Uh, you do get a very definitive bump in searches for The Shining every October. So that's pretty clear. Also note is there was like a huge bump because you had Dr. Sleep come out in 2019. So as far as the source material goes, uh, one of the things that we usually take a look at is goodreads.com, which allows for kind of crowdsourcing what genre you feel a book is. Anyone can go on there and put what they think it is. 67% uh, of nearly 30,000 respondents considered the book horror, 12% uh, labeled as thriller, and then the remaining categories, a lot of them are very horror-oriented anyway, because you have terms like it's dark, Halloween, scary, spooky, terror, ghosts, supernatural, paranormal. Um, you do have some lesser things like fantasy, mystery, suspense, and gothic, but it's pretty clear that the predominant genre picked for it is horror on Goodreads. So, without further ado, uh, how did everyone view this film the Shining, is it horror? I definitely feel like it's horror. I feel like it gives me the same feeling of like anxiety and dread that all of my favorite horror movies do. Okay, so I have a take on what genre I think it is. Do you do that now or should I wait? <laughs> uh, you're welcome to say it right now. You're good. Okay. Um, um, this, is, this is a... Uh, I, I chose violence when I woke up this morning. Uh, <laughs> the Shining is not horror. It is actually a part of a very niche genre of the National Lampoon's Vacation movies. <laughs> and I have proof. I have receipts to explain it. So whenever we get there... <laughs> I, I, I cannot wait to hear this. I love me a good theory. I'm excited. Okay, but also, do you think it's horror? I mean, yes, but also... <laughs> <laughs> but also it is a it is a vacation movie. Chevy Chase could have played this role. So it's so it's both. It's it's the horror version of National Lampoon's Vacation. Uh, yeah, maybe those movies it's are true. horror. Oh. Maybe that's yeah, okay. true. <laughs> I definitely think this is horror, specifically psychological horror slash art house horror, but we'll get into that later if we need to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, it's uh, it's hands down horror, maybe with a National Lampoon bent, I guess. But uh, yeah, definitely <laughs> horror on my end. <laughs> we have one believer. I would say it's horror, but I one the thought that I had during the movie was that if there was absolutely no music during this movie, would I still think it's horror? So we can bring that up later. I oh, guess. we're gonna get into it for sure. Yeah, that's a very good point, Matt. I agree that I definitely think it's horror. Uh, I can understand, I think, where people are coming from when they say that it isn't, and we'll certainly get to that. I know there's a lot of we'll get to that. But anyway, um, I can see where people are coming from, but I disagree. I do believe it is horror. Okay, so before we get into the full-blown analysis, I wanted to see what first, uh, what was everyone's introduction to The Shining? How did you first become aware of this film? When did you first see it? Did you read the book first? Did you see the TV miniseries first? Ugh, mine is so embarrassing. I watched this with a guy I liked freshman year of college, um, like two months before Matt and I started dating. 
Uh, and he hyped it up as his favorite movie and was like, you need to see this. So I watched it with him and like some of his friends on his dorm. And I remember being like, hmm, are you sure that this is your favorite? And it was an omen for what was to come. Newsflash. I think this is a good movie, <laughs> but it's certainly like I would not put it as a favorite. <laughs> okay. For me, I definitely saw it as a kid at some point. I don't remember when. Um, I read the book as well. Uh, and then I didn't really touch this movie much because it was never one that like really stood out to me. And I, I did really enjoy the book. And I think I, I definitely prefer the book. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that I had like a knowledge of this from a pop culture standpoint to an extent, but I didn't actually get familiar with the story until probably my freshman year in college. I did read the book. Um, and then I'm pretty sure some one of the film majors forced me to watch the Kubrick version of the of the film. And I, I don't remember the book in detail, but I do remember preferring the book because there are some pretty major differences, if I recall. My first exposure was probably around that same time for me, like the like early college kind of thing. I was aware of it for a long time, and I remember everybody kind of having this respect for it. Uh, and I do like the film, but yeah, I'm in the same camp of I like the book better. I I'm pretty sure I saw the movie first and what and read the book close thereafter. Um, and yeah, I like the book a lot better. Um, I read the book first and then watched the movie. I can't remember why, but I feel like I did this whole, I'm having like deja vu about this whole situation. Like, I feel like I talked about the movie with somebody and also talked about the book with somebody. It was probably either you or Mitz, <laughs> but <laughs> yes, I read the book first and then saw the movie. And I, also I'm just a big fan of Stephen King and probably read like 30 or more of king books at this point so not to interrupt but there are a lot of readers in this group i promise i know how to read i just <laughs> hannah's, this one. <laughs> hannah's a bigger reader than i am but she's yeah read zero king yeah i'm I mean, like a 50 to 75 books a year girly but i have avoided the horror genre like the plague i've been trying for to get, get it, it for a while and i i feel like it's time <laughs> yeah i swear i know how to read though i promise that's okay. We, I'll, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> Try starting with his short story anthologies if you want something like quick to get like a taste of what it's all about. That's a good suggestion. No, jump into the 1,200 pages of it. Oh, my God. <laughs> Please. <laughs> it's, we, we have it. She said to read 60 books a year. <laughs> well, they're not all 1,200 pages long. <laughs> if you read The Shining, though, you got to follow it up with Dr. Sleep, in my opinion. Yeah. Oh, definitely. If you read only 60 books this year, make one of them it or The Shining. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, for me, weirdly enough, I think my first introdu introduction to The Shining was actually from the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror episode. At least that was the first time it got on my radar because they have yeah. a spoof of it. I love that. Yeah, it's... Uh, but. Then the other weird thing after that is that it was a book or that it was a movie first really dawned on me when, because in the uh, 90s, Stephen King did this whole thing where he's, you know, famously didn't like this movie and he wanted to do a more faithful adaptation. So he did this TV miniseries and they were making a big deal about that because King books being made into miniseries was a big deal and they usually worked well, referencing it. And so I had heard about The Shining first as a thing 
realizing it was a book and it was a movie before that because of the miniseries. So I saw the miniseries and read the book before I ever saw Kubrick's version of things. And then the other thing I want to see is any was anyone kind of a Kubrick fan before this as well? Like uh, anyone really into his films? I'll be honest, for both Hannah and I, Kubrick is like a big blind spot blind spot for me i've seen full metal mm-hmm. jacket but i have never gone into like clockwork orange i've actually never seen 2001 which is crazy I like and like kind of, i don't want to admit that to be honest um, <laughs> but uh and i i feel like i'd really like strange love and i've never seen it so i think that's one that i i feel a little bit guilty about we're gonna have to solve that yeah we'll remedy that situation this winter please listen to us anyway i promise we <laughs> We're better than this. <laughs> it, it's okay. You're, you know, you're doing horror film analysis. Kubrick's only really got the one entry, so it makes sense. It's okay. You're not losing credibility. <laughs> I don't really think I can call myself a Kubrick fan. Like, I think I've probably only seen two or three of his films. Um, and while I, I can kind of appreciate them for what they are, but I can't say that I'm a fan. Like, I don't, like, I don't, I don't know. They're not things that I would necessarily rewatch more than twice in my life. And for me, who's like a repetitive rewatcher, that's pretty low. So I'm going to go with nah. I'm in a similar boat. I haven't really watched much of his stuff. And there's some some of his stuff that I feel like I should have. Like I haven't seen 2001 either, uh, or at least not all the way through. Uh, uh, but yeah, I need to remedy that. But I, I don't know. I guess he just hasn't quite caught me the way he has with a lot of people. So, oh, well. <laughs> yeah, like I would consider myself more of a Scorsese fan than, I don't know. It just doesn't translate. I feel that. Yeah, we're Scorsese heads over here. <laughs> I knew I liked you guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've never seen another Kubrick film, so this is it for me. I've seen a few of his others, uh, like Full Metal Jacket and A Clockwork Orange, 2001. Uh, I guess Spartacus and Doctor Strangelove. Not that I have to like sit here and list them all off. But, you know, I've seen a few of them, but I wouldn't ever have considered myself a big Kubrick fan. This is probably my favorite of his films. And just because I came to it through King's novel first, I, I always have a little bit of an issue with it. Like, I do really like this film a lot. Um, but, yeah, I just it's never really inspired me to dig deep into Kubrick's back catalog. And then I guess the other thing kind of wanted to take a look at before we really get into this in earnest is, do you think when it comes to film analysis with a movie like this that deviates so much from the book, do you think it's worth going to the book for answers when you have questions about the film? Or is it better to take the film on its own terms and just say, what's on screen is all that counts? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting question because ultimately I'm not sure that the movie and the book are trying to achieve even remotely the same things or have the same themes or analysis. Like I said, I I haven't read the book, but I do, you know, I've read the synopsis and everything. And I know that the boiler is representative of like Jack's building insanity and like mental health struggles throughout the novel. But in the movie it's his wife that's working the boiler room. So there's so much of the analysis that is very blatantly missing from the movie. So, you know, they're not that connected, or at least not what you would want from 
an adaptation. But at the same time, I will say I had a couple questions that I then asked Matt, who read the book, and that did help clear it up, so I don't know. <laughs> so I will say, typically, no, you should never go to the book to try to figure out what the filmmaker's doing. But I'm going to be critical of this movie and say that I can't figure out like if Kubrick was trying to do his own thing or do the book. And I, it, to me, in a lot of ways, feels like he ends up doing nothing like separate from the book, but he like doesn't fulfill the promises of the book. And it like kind of really makes it hard for me to enjoy this movie. So for me, I, like, I had to go to the book to understand. Yeah, I think I'm agreeing with what both of you have said so far. I think that you're not going to get the answers from the book um, that you would need to get from the film if you have questions about it. Um, but I think that if you're invested in the characters and the storyline and you would like a little bit more, I don't know, a little bit more time with those characters or like a different perspective with those characters, then absolutely read the book. Because honestly, let's be real. How many times has the movie outdone the book? Can anyone think of any examples off the top of their head? Because I can't. I have one, actually. <laughs> I, <laughs> I think have I can one. come up with one. It's me and Earl on the Dying Girl. That's my one. And it's because the author wrote the screenplay and he very much knew he wanted to make it a movie eventually. And it's different, but like good different. And that's like the rare exception. Because to your point, like it never happens. I will definitely have to watch that. This is a really goofy one, but I've heard it. And I think <laughs> it's funny. But The Bible. Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> like how many good movies have been made from like biblical literature? Yeah, like not that I'm that interested in it, but for real. Like there's been a lot. Think of Prince of Egypt. Come on. That's a like, conversation for another minutes. day. <laughs> yeah. Be because I also like to be a contrarian, especially to Brianna. No. <laughs> um, I will also say Those are some facts right there. <laughs> so so Stephen King's short story, The Mist, I think is a much better movie than it is a short story. Is So that's kind of related that. to what we're talking about. Weren't here. there two different incarnations of that? Or am I thinking of the different a different Stephen King story? There is a TV show version of The Mist, but the movie yeah. is okay. the better. Okay, I have read the short story, so I'll have to watch it. And the movie, I think, is better mostly just because of the ending. But yeah. I do agree with it, you. Does for it the completely most part. differ from the text? Like, is it? See, that's where I get hung up. And The Shining's a good example. When your ending completely differs, I start to have problems with it. See, the ending. I personally, this is my personal opinion, that I think that the ending for the movie of The Mist is much more compelling than the ending of the short story, The Mist. Okay. All right. I'll so add it you'll to have the to list. check those out. But I do agree with you for the most part. I think books typically are better than their on-screen adaptation. We might have to dig in this a little bit further because The Mist is on the docket for this season. Oh, okay. We'll save oh. the discussion for that. But I'll just give my answer now out of order. But um, <laughs> I, typically, I typically always like to read the book before I ever watch the movie. But I also really make a concerted effort to try and enjoy... A movie for what it is rather than enjoying it for how well it adapts the book uh, I've definitely had issues with that on some things but I really try to compartmentalize I go back and forth especially with this particular one because Kubrick was happy to leave this very ambiguous and 
didn't do a lot of interviews to explain his films or at least tried hard to avoid that because he did want his audience to kind of think and decide for themselves what they thought things meant. And I can appreciate that, but because of how vague this movie is about a lot of its answers, it's hard to not refer to the book and say, well, the book does give you some more definite explanations for things. So why not try and use those to a degree? So I, I don't know. I go, I can respect someone who says, you know, I'm going to go and I'm just going to analyze this film based solely what's on the screen and not worry about anything that's in the book. I guess that makes sense because that's kind of what Kubrick and Johnson did in their adaptation of things anyway. But I don't know at the same time, like I said, I go back and forth. I'm going back and forth in this answer. So I can understand the impulse though. I don't have much to add to that, I guess, just to say that it was interesting to me in doing um, kind of research for this and watching some uh, some videos of people analyzing things. And and they start analyzing things and are like, oh, what does this mean? And I'm sitting there being like, they tell you in the book, like, why are you you know, why are you digging into this? Like, uh, or why are you making up these things when there are answers out there? But anyways, I guess that was just my take on it. So getting into the meat of whether or not The Shining is horror, one of the most common reasons I found that people would say that The Shining isn't horror is that they just simply didn't find the movie scary. Now, we've talked quite a bit at length in other episodes about why something being scary doesn't necessarily translate to it being horror because of how subjective that can be. But I wanted to see, do you think that The Shining is scary? And how much did that factor into your classification? How much weight did you put on that in this instance? I would say I wasn't actively scared watching this, but Dictionary.com defines horror as an intense feeling of fear, shock, or disgust. So I'd argue that even if I wasn't actively scared, like that doesn't mean it's not horror. Some of my favorite horror movies are most effective for me because of the sense of dread it leaves me with, like The Witch, um, and this movie makes me feel similarly uncomfortable. Yeah, for me, it's, I am, no, I don't find it too scary at this point, but at some point in my life, I know I did. And so like that kind of like works for me there. I don't think I have too much more to add. (laughs) Fair enough. I think that for the time when this movie was made, it it was considered scary and shocking. Um, I Watching it now, you know, a second time or third time in my adult life, I've I don't think I find it scary. I find it very disturbing. Jack Nicholson mm-hmm. is kind of terrifying in this. And the, the that with, combined with the musical score and like there's some pretty classic horror elements that they use, like the jump scares, you know, the little boy on the trike always gets me like his little zoom angle around the hallways. It's just it's claustrophobic and weird. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, um, I guess I'm similar. I don't particularly find it scary other than watching Jack get more and more unhinged. Uh, But uh, like I'm more scared for Wendy and I guess that's maybe the point. But like just some of the times he like snaps at her are pretty intense. Well, Wendy is kind of the classic final girl if we want to look at it through that lens too. Yeah, I'd buy that. So... A hard thing for me is that I actually, so I know that I'm, I talked just now about compartmentalizing, but 
I did find the book to be quite scary, like in especially in the presentation of like the woman in the bathtub and even the so in the book uh it's like uh hedge animals rather than like a hedge maze and Stephen King I think does a really good job of making bringing the real life horror that we sometimes feel in places where we're alone and we don't know what's going on so an example is the hedge animals in the shining or uh going through the dark tunnel uh or the dark tunnel out of new york in the stand um just like things that don't really have any type of actual monster or killer or anything but that just ominous feeling of feeling like you're being watched or feeling like something could be coming for you. So I think the book does such a good job at that, but in the movie, I just wasn't that scared when they added those elements, especially like the woman in the bathtub for maybe for me, it's the effects and the makeup Uh, actually just seeing those brought to life and having it in front of me makes it less scary than what my imagination could conjure up. Uh, just to add to that uh, real briefly, like I think I was, I think Stephen King does a really good job at kind of capturing some of that childhood fear in Danny and just how he's perceiving, perceiving things. And like, I remember feeling some of those feelings and I, I agree. It's one of those, like you don't, there's not something actually there. In this case, there is, but you know he does just a, a much better job at showing that, and I didn't feel that as much in the movie. I felt like the movie was almost trying to make Danny feel a little creepy, like the way they uh, had him present Tony and that kind of thing, and like have him talk in a weird voice and carry a knife around and things like that, which I d- didn't speak to me as much. I I thought it was better in the book to have Danny be a more relatable character to childhood. And I've heard that a lot from people that have seen this movie and wanted to talk to me about it is I've heard a lot of people talk about how they found Danny to be creepy. And if you find Danny to be creepy, then whether or not someone's going to kill him with an axe suddenly doesn't feel like it has as much weight. Um, (laughs) So I guess at least for me anyway, I think there was a point at which that I found at least the novel scary. But I think by the time I actually watched Kubrick's version of The Shining, uh, it, it wasn't really a thing that I... I ever really perceived it as scary. I can see how people would think of it that way, but it doesn't necessarily work that way for me. Do you think that Kubrick intended for The Shining to be scary would be the next question. At a minimum, I think it's meant to be at least unsettling and scary in a real life way, like thinking about the, you know, the domestic violence. Um, And I think what makes it so unsettling and uncomfortable is, you know, we have a lot of quick cuts between what's there and what our characters are seeing. The performances are really unsettling, the music, the isolation our characters are enduring, and the production design altogether, you know, contribute to that feeling. So I know at least that much is intentional. I think he read The Shining and was like, oh, Jack Torrance is the the perfect Kubrick character and latched onto just that and solely focused on creating the, he wanted it to be scary, but creating the most like 
uncomfortable, unhinged man he could, and I think like missed a lot of the other story because of it. But I that was the intent, right? Was to make this uncomfortable character. No, I think that makes sense. I guess, yeah, in thinking about the film, I think it does really focus a lot on that version of Jack. So yeah, I think that makes sense. And it's pretty similar to, you know, how Chevy Chase acts by the end of any of the <laughs> vacation movies. So that's one of them. I mean, really think about it. He starts out, you know, kind of normal. Like, uh, I'm this dad. We're going to go on this this holiday for five months and you know, everything's going to be fine. But, you know, from there, hijinks ensue. <laughs> yeah, I think my favorite, though, is like his little spiel that he says um, during Christmas vacation about when he finds out he doesn't get his Christmas bonus. This would translate into The Shining. I'm on board with this now. He has really one of these moments. Me. Yes, yes, he has yes, a moment. Absolutely. He has the monologue. And every yep. movie culminates with him yep. having a psychotic break, giving a monologue, and then an outburst directed at anybody in his path. Right. I am now on like, board with this theory. Yeah, solely. I got I got more as we go along. I got I got a bunch of bullet points. So <laughs> I don't know if you're on the right podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it felt important. All right. I said, "Is it horror?" I was like, "Well, no. It's a vacation movie." Yeah. <laughs> so I guess um, for me personally, I I do think that he was intending to make the film unsettling, but I'm not sure if that's necessarily the same thing. As scary, as scary per se. So I think it's in the neighborhood, but I'm, I don't know. I don't think that he, I think that he wanted to make something that was extremely non-traditional as far as horror goes. So he sort of wanted to be in that wheelhouse, but maybe wasn't necessarily as focused on trying to be scary in the traditional sense. So I think maybe that's why it doesn't kind of work on that level for a lot of people. Like if you're going in and someone tells you it's the scariest movie ever, and then it's not like any other horror movie that you've seen, it kind of reminds me of the lighthouse in that way. Well, I was just going to ask, like, don't you feel that this is a prime, like earlier example, example of trying to like, quote unquote, elevate the horror genre. Like this is very clearly art house horror, just like the lighthouse in a lot of respects. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think, I think that's exactly what it is. I think that's where he was coming from with it. So another item that I see brought up as to why the shining isn't horror is the low body count. So we have Jack succeed at killing exactly one person in Dick Halloran. Uh, Jack also dies, but depending on the way the movie's presented, it's not like he's a victim. Uh, we're shown that the Grady girls, that they have died, but we're not shown their death scene. So I wanted to see, does it matter that the film has a low body count in terms of your horror classification? Absolutely not. I would say like The Conjuring. No one would fight you on whether that is horror or not, and no one dies throughout the course of that movie. Um, like, nobody's. Creep, which is another fun one, I feel like is very clearly like a found footage horror. Although, I would say it's a little more like, I don't know if I'd say psychological, but it's doing something a little different. Um... But again, like, that has one single death, and it's not until the last scene. I think, like, if the movie, like I said before, can successfully make you feel fear, shock, or disgust, like, it doesn't matter how many people die or not. And I think we have to go back to the book, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think 
anybody other than Jack dies in the book. Because I know Dick lives. Yeah, that's correct. I think you're so, correct. And Jack is more of a victim in the film, in the book rather. But yeah, he's the only one that dies in the book. And I would say, at least for me, the book is definitely horror. So that'd be my argument. <laughs> I don't think the low body count uh, matters at all. I think that we've talked about a couple of different movies where we kind of proved that point. Um, but for me, uh, with regards to this movie specifically, the reason the low body count doesn't matter is because everything else, like we're centering on the human fear of isolation, number one. And that lets us look at a really small family unit and focus on that. So I think it just adds to the claustrophobia and like the, just the dissonance of the entire experience. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know that I have too much to add to that. I agree with all points that have been made. I don't think that you need to have a high body count for it to be horror. Yeah, same. I think uh, some of the most classic horror doesn't have very high body counts, so no. I mean, it can't all be Army of Darkness up in there, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, then let's take a look at least at as far as what we are shown in terms of gore and in terms of death. Does the fact that we see the grisly aftermath of two children's death and that Jack's trying to kill his six-year-old son contribute to the horror feel of the film? Like, would it be a little bit different if, say, they were just random adult workers within the hotel? Well, I was going to say, like, you could have these plot points and it not be horror. I do think that because it's only the three of them at the hotel, like we've mentioned between like they're already isolated we know they're isolated we have all of these shots that very much show they're isolated even like the opening shots of them driving up the road like it's very clear there aren't a lot of people there i think that that combined with the other factors like the unsettling edits the performances again like that's what makes it horror for me i don't think like the plot itself to a degree like you could have a similar plot and it not be horror like, it could be, tr like, a law and order. <laughs> sure, yeah. Absolutely. I will say for this film, though, uh, like, King is the master of violence against children. And, like, in some ways, there is nothing scarier than violence against children. I would um, agree with that. And so, like, I like seeing a movie like go all out and be like, no, like, this is a thing. This happens in the real world. Like, there is violence against kids. And it's terrible, and it's something like we wish never happened. But like to put it on film, like I think does elevate the, the scares. And I think we've seen other films do it, and I feel like when they have the uh, strength to go there, it, it like does help. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, kids dying or kids being in danger or hunted like that's a huge like social taboo, and it's absolutely terrifying to you know basically anyone who has ever been close to their kid or their nieces and nephews like yeah i think that was probably one of the worst parts of the film like the the jump cuts that they make to the the grady twins and the gore that's involved there it's brief but it's stark it's kind of like a punch in the gut almost it was super effective for me i was gonna ask you mean worst in like a good way like worst is in 
Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Like that was the most impactful. Like if anyone would ever argue, you know, that this wasn't necessarily horror, like that would, that scene right there would almost always tip me towards horror no matter what, just because of how it was presented. Yeah, I agree with that. It And it raised the stakes, I think, a little bit and not just like it took it out of concept instead of just being like, oh, Jack, you know, might hurt Danny. It's like, well, here's what actually happened to these these girls like and there it made it more real. I I think the, the possibility of it being more real and um, at, especially on like a first viewing or something like that. And what makes it even worse is that it's not just like a rando child getting killed by a rando person. Like this is your parent that does you in like, that's awful. I was kind of curious, um, Matt, Matt, my brother, uh, how does this hit for you as a parent? Uh, well, I always feel like Stephen King, like, like has been said, he really doesn't pull punches on, violence with kids so obviously the sequel to the shining not really the sequel but the the film adaptation of dr sleep which is the sequel to the shining has probably like one of the worst so i say worst one of the most graphic representations of murdering a child that's maybe ever been on screen i don't know um and yeah it is difficult to see and difficult to not put yourself in the situation of if that was happening to your child um i do think that when you bring in children and you put them in mortal danger in films that it does raise the stakes somewhat especially for me here's the only problem though is where I think Kubrick fails is because the rules of this movie are so unclear. We don't actually know if that actually happened. Right. That's true. And we are going to get into all that. <laughs> uh, okay. Sorry. I'm, I'm jumping ahead. <laughs> oh no, no, no problem at all. But that's something that I was thinking about. I was like, you know, that is, it is scary, but then it's also like, is the house messing with them? Or is it like hallucinations? It's, it's so vague to a point where I think it actually like, kind of fails. Unfortunately. That makes sense. And the thing it's, I think at least an interesting bit of trivia too, is at least the idea for the shining came from Stephen King being on a uh, family trip in the Stanley hotel in Colorado. And he had a nightmare about someone chasing his son, uh, particularly Joe Hill, who is now an author in his own right. And we'll be covering some of his stuff later, but uh, just particularly someone chasing his son down the halls. And so like that whole fear of someone trying to hurt his son is at the core of what prompted him to create the novel in the first place. And then I, I wanted do... to go ahead. Sorry, I was going to add, I do think that it, it takes away from it, to an extent, I, I know we're kind of comparing and contrasting a little bit the book and the movie, but I think the it the film takes away from it a little bit by sort of dehumanizing um, Danny a lot of times by making him sort of this representation of the horror of the film rather than a person with thoughts and feelings about the situation that's going on. Because like the book is very much focused on Danny's point of view of what's happening and his feelings about it and the movie i think almost 
completely glosses over him as being a potential character to think and feel and <laughs> he's more just an object that's acted upon a lot of the time in the movie it's not just him in this movie <laughs> well yeah <laughs> <laughs> no, no 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 i mean it's not ju- it, it's not just him that feels glossed over is what i mean yeah absolutely I was just going to say, well, let's jump into that idea because I didn't necessarily have this as a question, but how did the characterization or how the characters are represented at the very least impact your view of this as horror? Because I, I, they're definitely more shallow in description than in the novel, but as far as what's on the film, how did you feel about these characters? Did you care about them? I feel like I definitely did. I think it's really hard, like we were saying, to see violence against anyone but especially like this woman who's just trying to support her child and her partner and a child like it's hard to see that and not inherently be like that is horrific and again that can you know we can see that on law and order but i think even then it's scary so (laughs) i find it hard to feel much for jack because uh, having Jack Nicholson play the part makes him seem just pretty much like he's lost it before the movie has even begun. Um, so it's like there's not much of that like fall into madness that makes me care about him that I felt was in the book. And I know I, I, it's hard to not go back to the book on this. Um, but I, I do find a lot of the characterizations make it harder for me to be scared because I'm not like fully bought into all the characters. I will say, like, I agree. I think the characters in this are really one dimensional and flat. I think, like we said, I think the son might have the most personality, but I think that's also just because of the shining, not because of him as a character. And I think, Unfortunately, Wendy is very one note, like all she is in this movie is a victim and all Jack is, is the entire time is mad. Like he's never not insane to me. Which is basically the exact problems that King had with both of their characters as compared to the book, you know? Agreed. Yeah, I agree. Jack Nicholson being cast as Jack Torrance just, I mean, did a great job. Scary as hell. But there, we didn't get to see the character arc that we, that I remember seeing in the book. Um, I did read somewhere that uh, John Voight was apparently auditioning for this role and got turned down. I think he would have been a really interesting choice because I think that he has like this really, or at least at that time, had like this sort of ed- everyman vibe that would have been interesting to watch fall apart. Having I think seen it's telling that National he didn't get Treasure. You're good. Go ahead. I was going to say having seen National Treasure far before I saw The Shining, that would have been really interesting for me. (laughs) I just think about the first uh, Mission Impossible and I actually find that that would have been killer casting. But that would like, it's crazy to think how pop culture would have just completely like changed. I can't imagine a world where it isn't Jack Nicholson. Yeah, for real. Like, do we think The Shining would have been this this version of The Shining? Do we think it would have been as popular were it not for Jack Nicholson's portrayal? Because the first thing I knew about The Shining was the "Here's Johnny." Like, yep. that's the first thing that I remember knowing about this movie before I ever saw it or like watched, you know, read the book. So I'm wondering, like, would it have had the same pop culture effect were it not for that casting choice? Hmm. That can be like a behind the scenes episode. 
(laughs) (laughs) I think one of the things for me on this is um, I don't necessarily like feel for a lot of the characters. Well, I do, but I almost feel, I I find myself watching this and feeling more bad for like Sherry, uh, Shelly Duvall. And just because of some of the stories I hear about what she went through um, during the filming and how hard Kubrick was on her. Um, So I can't help thinking about that anytime I watch this movie. Yeah, is that you're kind of literally watching her be abused on screen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Is it horror? Horrific adaptation? Horrific time for Shelley Duvall? So I'd say yes. (laughs) It was horror for her, for sure. (laughs) So one of the other things that, of course, we always bring up with gets brought up with the shining is atmosphere and you know the tone of the film and one of the things one of the ways in which that's created is that Kubrick spends a lot of time in the shining juxtaposing everyday moments with this dark and foreboding score so just as an example we already brought up the opening credits which uh if you have no sound at all it's just a picturesque peaceful drive through the mountains really just beautiful but then the music playing over it is extremely ominous. So how did the score affect your classification of the film? That was exactly what I was going to say. I was using that first, like the opening, as my example. I think it does play a big role in increasing those feelings of tension, discomfort, and fear. Another you know, example besides that opening beautiful drive would just be even watching Danny like walk the hall of the hotel. Like it's just a boy walking, walking some halls wouldn't be inherently scary, but the slow walk, the increased tension with the music, it all really does come together to increase that fear and discomfort. I like the music. However, I keep being very critical and I feel like I sound like I hate this movie, but <laughs> it's, it's too, it's too ominous too early, which is the same problem I have with Jack Nicholson in this is it's like the point of this story is his fall into madness. Like it, we shouldn't start with madness. And I think that that actually takes away in some ways. Once it's like, once we're full swing, the music's great. And like when Danny is like pondering the, or wandering the hallways and, and looking around to have it for this, like, Ooh, maybe something's not right. It's good. But like, I, I, I just, I find it weird. I find that the tone of this movie odd with the way that it's like, we're right into it from the beginning. It's, it's, things are awry. Yeah. Cause the novel's a tragedy. The movie isn't. I know. And I, I want to separate the novel, but I guess on this most recent watch, it's just, you like start seeing these things. And it's like, ah, I just, I just wish if that, if, if I could change one thing about this movie, that would be it. Is it's like, let's build into this, like delve into madness. I'll try not to complain too much more. Nah, you're good. Have at it. <laughs> well, I happen to unanimously within myself adore the score. That was one of the only things about this film that I thought was like really, really perfect. I really love that juxtaposition that we see through this whole thing. I love it when like they do the flip of it where they're showing like maybe a really gory, awful scene. And then the soundtrack is like something happy and light and childlike, you know, completely out of place. I think that adds to the the unsettling vibe. So whole score worked for me. And that's something else that really tips this into the whole horror circle of the Venn diagram. 
So you tell me you don't want to hear Holiday Road early while they're like driving along? You know, <laughs> nice, nice vacation totally song. Film, <laughs> I mean, there's trailers out there that turn this into like a happy family comedy. So mm-hmm. Matt is on it's it. Road trip, road trip vacation movie. You know. <laughs> One thing that I noticed in this viewing of the film is, I do think the score really, really changes the whole atmosphere of it, but. At times when it's like really heating up and we're heading into like the real kind of horror moments and and Jack has really fallen into kind of madness, it like the music that they're playing like literally is painful in my ears. I don't know if anybody else got that feeling watching it, but like I had it a little loud and I was like I was like, this like literally hurting me to hear this. So it feels like an intentional choice to just that the music is making you feel physically uncomfortable, not even just emotionally uncomfortable. It is almost oppressive at sometimes the score of the film, for sure. And honestly, I think there are a lot of moments. I feel like the movie spends a lot of time building tension through the soundtrack. I I can see what um, what you're saying to Matt and Hannah is just the idea of maybe it's building too early. Because I, I agree, I prefer the novel to the movie where there is some escalation, there's character arcs, there's there feels like there's a little bit more of a stake to things. Um, but then, yeah, in this, it just starts out with that extremely ominous tone from the get-go one of the things i saw too that was kind of interesting is that uh, jordan peele was citing that he kind of stole the intro a little bit in that way to get out because it's even the same color for the the title and it's like this ominous music right from the get-go so i was kind of just thinking that was interesting that connection anyway there's a random factoid but uh yeah i just the score is such a big factor in the tension building in this film it's hard to even imagine it without the music there it would just be a whole different experience entirely so the next thing uh kind of bear with me a little bit as a sort of build towards this concept because i have a whole bunch of questions at the end and a little bit of talking to do before getting into it but one of the things about the shining is that it contains quite a few inconsistencies and these inconsistencies are kind of at the heart of a lot of popular theories about the meaning of the film. Uh, the argument usually goes something like Kubrick was a perfectionist and therefore any inconsistencies are clearly intentional and serve some kind of purpose. And so I kind of broke those inconsistencies into three categories to discuss them a little bit and then to break down the whole thing at the end. But uh, the first one being impossible hotel geometry. So one type of inconsistency involves the layout of the overlook. Throughout the film, we're given several long tracking shots within the hotel, and these shots usually reveal some sort of impossible construction elements. Examples would be windows both in Ullman's office and the Torrance's apartment, which are placed along interior walls, or the lack of space for a room like 237 to to exist given the hallway layout. And so I wanted to... uh, So first off... Is that something that stood out to you while you watched the film? Did you notice those layout inconsistencies for the Overlook? I did not find it glaringly obvious, I think. But maybe I'm just not good at paying attention, frankly. 
but but I yeah I feel like those weren't things that I noticed that really contributed to my understanding of the overall film uh for me I don't think it's something I've ever noticed it's something I've heard about do I think he did it on purpose I think it's very possible it's also very possible he was too busy making Shelley Duvall do 60 takes of the bat swinging shot. So he wasn't really worried about <laughs> it. Like, I, honestly, like I, I could see it being a real thing, but I, I just don't know. I mean, every movie has inconsistencies. Like we're, we built, they built a separate set. They didn't film in that hotel that they use like what I would call like the B real footage from. So I don't know. I did not notice any of the inconsistencies. Like I had to go back and like click the x-ray option on the prime video that I rented, whatever. And yeah, I, it never even occurred to me, but I am, I generally am the type of person who will like, my brain's like a goldfish, you know, like the, the castle's a, a surprise every time I circle the bowl. And I really want a movie to like pull the proverbial rabbit out of the hat for me so i can pretty much buy in and be very gullible as a viewer so that probably had a lot to do with it i'm kind of same way like i i don't think like i don't remember noticing them before they were pointed out to me uh but uh like once they were pointed out to me i could i saw them and started noticing that type of thing a little bit more. And I think he probably did do them on purpose. Uh, but uh, I guess I was kind of willing to, well, I just didn't think about them because I guess as a viewer, I'm willing to be like, well, this is, this is a set and, you know, spaces don't have to necessarily make sense. Um, and maybe that's me being too lowbrow for this type of movie. But, uh, but yeah, I guess, I didn't think about them too much until they were pointed out to me. Guys, you're making me feel so much better because I really just <laughs> thought that I missed half the movie. <laughs> <laughs> nope, not at all. I was right there with you. The, the one thing that I did notice about it is that the room, I always forget what the number is, which is horrible as a Stephen King fan, but the room with the with the lady in the bathtub. Yeah, the that bathroom is just humongous. So it's it's kind of like that is one that sort of is really glaringly obvious. But but did the bathroom that, exist? I don't know. Who knows? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say that I I don't think I noticed any of the sort of hotel geometry issues. Um, I think when they're pointed out, then you start to notice them and then they're pretty obvious. But yeah, I, I don't think I noticed any of those before either. Um, and then the next side of it would be just continuity errors in general. Um, so there are a whole bunch of continuity errors throughout the film. Some examples are the Snow White and the Seven Dwarves dopey sticker that's on Danny's bedroom door um, in Boulder that disappears and then there's people point out the disappearing, reappearing nightstand in Jack and Wendy's bedroom and small details like moving or disappearing pens and chairs throughout the film. So uh, I was curious to see if any of those continuity errors were those things that you noticed. Did those stand out to you at all either? Again, like I really didn't notice them. And I think it's interesting, like if they were deliberate, you would think that they'd be at least slightly more noticeable. 
Like, for example, in Shutter Island, there's a lot of, like, very glaring continuity errors. Uh, like, the smoke of a cigarette will go in the wrong direction. And things like that, that, like, show it's, you know, not happening the way that it's supposed to. I don't know, whatever. But I think that it's very deliberately adding tension and unease. And you would think that if these were deliberate, then we would have noticed them. <laughs> that was a great point. I'm proud of you. <laughs> I got, a, got, a, little, bring got the, a little muddled in there in my brain. No, you're right. Bringing the, bring, bring the no, Scorsese movie into it is you're you're absolutely correct. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna make a stand right here, and I'm I'm stating it as fact that these were not deliberate. I've decided. Okay. And if Stanley Kubrick wants to argue with me, he can. Ring a phone to wherever he is. I'm not alive. He's, I know. Yeah, I was about to say, I, I'm he's sorry. Deceased. You know what? He can't defend himself. I'm gonna. I'm stating it. Come on the pod. You know. Thank you. <laughs> I would. I'm sorry. I would take a phone call from Kubrick at this point just to see where he was. <laughs> but it's just. I don't know. I. I can't imagine it was deliberate, right? Like, like this isn't his job. Did my computer just die? Hello. I can oh, he still hear you. Whole, my computer just like went black screened on me. That Sorry, we're back. Alarming. We're back. It's That was Kubrick. Holy shit. Oh That's right. God. He's not happy about what you probably say. All right. I changed my mind. I'm not saying. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm just like, that's not even his job, right? Like on sets, like there are people that do continuity stuff. Like it's not the director. He's got a lot of other things to worry about. I just, I have to imagine it's just a mistake. I really, I'd love to believe, but. I just don't. Yeah, didn't this movie take like several years to be produced and released? I mean, I feel like a lot of those errors can just be chalked up to someone fucked up in the editing room and was just tired of looking at the same, you know, three frames of things that the director was like, you need to find the best one. And it did take over a year of filming. And there was a set that had burnt down and had to be rebuilt during the course of the making of the film. Yeah, it was it was in England, correct? Because I don't think yes. the director would fly, correct? He would. Um, he he had this whole thing where, at least at his time period, when he was making movies, there was only a handful of hubs that you could be at and be a Hollywood director. And he happened to decide that London was the place he liked best. So that's kind of where he ended up there. I feel like he was Mariah Carey before Mariah Carey in terms of being diva. <laughs> Maybe a bit, yeah. You better be careful. Your screen's going to go black soon, too. Yeah, he's coming <laughs> for you. Bring it, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and then kind of the final element of this, and then to really get into the discussion on on all of these elements and what they contribute to the film, uh, the final type of inconsistency comes from basically contradicting dialogue. You, The biggest example of this comes from descriptions of the Grady's, the daughters are both described as twins and as being two years in, apart in age. Uh, the Grady father is given both the first name of Charles and of Delbert. Um, so are those contradictory statements or those things that you noticed as well while you were watching the film? Okay, guys, I actually did notice one of these. Uh, I did Yay! notice <laughs> yeah, <laughs> about the daughters. I very much noticed that, especially because in every like image from this movie it's the twins and they look like twins and then when they mentioned that they were two years apart my brain broke a little so i 
that one definitely did stand out to me. What it meant, who's to say? I didn't notice this one, but I was very sleepy when I watched the movie. <laughs> um, yeah. Blame no. it on the sleep. I know. It's, it might just be me. I might just be dumb. Um, well, we know that's true, but... Yes. Oh. But no, no, no. Come on. Who else is going to compare this movie to the vacation films? All right. It takes a special kind of guy. <laughs> this is just the wacky side characters. The, that's why you're here. The the twins, Lloyd, the blowjob dog, they're all they're like Cousinetti. They're all the wacky characters that, that show up, all right? Um, <laughs> but no, I, I didn't notice. I do think it's intentional here, though. I'll give them that one. I did pick up on the age difference for sure. Like that was one of the only things that stood out and I was really irritated with it. But you think it's intentional? Explain. I just assume that like, at least with dialogue, they're just doing weird stuff, like saying weird things to try to like, there's no consistency in this hotel. And the the question I always say is like, is any of this actually real? There's, it's never confirmed if they're ghosts or if the hotel is its own entity that's evil. Like, I kind of compared it to the house in The Haunting of Hill House, where it's like, there mm-hmm. are ghosts, right? But the house is also an entity that's manipulating them. So I, I kind of believe in this situation, it's, it's, you can't really believe anything Jack is seeing and perceiving. So it could be house manipulation. Is, that's 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 I think the the big one for me is I guess it's like or excuse me hotel like manipulating him. I also saw it as just like further evidence of Jack's deteriorating mental state. Yeah. Okay, so all of these logical inconsistencies throughout the film. Do you think that any of them, some of them, do you think any of it's meaningful? Do you think any of it's intentional? Where do you weigh in on all of that? So we're talking about the geography again. We're talking about continuity errors because some people point towards like, you know, missing stickers, moving chairs as as a big deal. Um, The contradictory dialogue. Yeah, like I think Matt and I were saying the only thing that stands out to me is contradictory dialogue. I think given the level of the inconsistencies, like that's the only one that is significant to me and genuinely noticeable for a casual viewer of a movie which is what most people are but when it comes to those like i i do think they are significant in showing how jack's mental status is deteriorating and also showing you know how much something is amiss here you can elaborate matthew yeah, I, I I like the theories. I just don't buy it, <laughs> to be honest. I other than maybe with the dialogue, I, I like I said before, I, I don't I, I we can we can believe, I just don't think that that was actually intentional. And if it was, you didn't do a very good job because clearly like how many people on this podcast didn't even notice it. Yeah, I think I'm with you on that one too. It, it I don't think it really matters whether it was intentional or not either. Yeah, I guess for my two cents on it, I I think I agree with all all of what's been said for the most part on that. I do think that some of it was intentional, but I also think that the parts that were intentional are a cover for some of the stuff that wasn't intentional. Or it's like 
some uh, people who want to get really into that stuff are digging in a little deeper than is actually there. Um, you know, like a pen moving slightly. I, I don't think that's anything, but I do think that he, he intentionally took chairs out of scenes and put them in otherwise, put them in, in the next cutscene um, to, uh, to kind of symbolize some of the disorientation of everything. Yeah, I, I think uh, it, if you want to sort of take that in your own mind as something that that was part of the film, then yes, but I don't necessarily think it was intentional in any way. Some of a, I mean, some of the very big stuff was probably intentional, but yeah, the smaller things probably not, because like people were saying, if we didn't even notice it and you couldn't notice it from multiple watchings, then there's probably a good chance that it wasn't something that they thought about doing when they filmed the movie. So here's the big argument with it and why it's worth bringing all of this up in terms of discussing whether or not the film is horror. There are a lot of people that are of the opinion that what Kubrick is trying to do with this film is basically have subliminal messaging in it that is sourced through these inconsistencies in the hotel geography in contradictory dialogue in continuity errors that you're not necessarily meant to actively notice it but that you are supposed to take it in and because of that have a feeling of disorientation or discomfort throughout your time viewing the film so then that's the question right is it's for that theory to be true it actually almost works better if you didn't notice it. So then there's the question of, do you think there's any possibility that Kubrick intentionally meant to have employ subliminal messaging in this film in order to make you feel uncomfortable? Yeah, I think I'm still just stuck on like, maybe, maybe <laughs> not. But either way, to me, it's disorienting. So I don't think it really matters to me regardless if he meant to or not like the movie is disorienting and that was the point so i agree with that i think that the disorientation is good i don't think that every part of what we saw as inconsistencies were disorienting but anything that does disorient i think is yeah like good and adds to the the horror vibes the vibes <laughs> Yeah, I, I agree with that as well. It's all about the vibes, and the vibes were effective, clearly. We all agreed on it. Yeah. I agree. I think that there's some of the stuff that I could buy into a little bit that Kubrick meant, but I I know there's people out there that say that there are absolutely, like I said before, that there's no continuity errors in a Kubrick film, that every last thing is intentional. I I really don't think that at all. I think maybe some of the things were intentional, maybe like, you know, I mentioned before, like the dopey sticker on the door, maybe that's supposed to symbolize a loss of innocence. I could maybe go with that. But some people get really into the weeds with it and say, like, if you look at the first time Danny sees the Grady twins, these chairs shift a little bit back and forth. And at that point, I, you know, I don't think so. Or the pen in Ullman's office moving around a little bit. I really don't think that that means anything. But I think maybe the layout stuff for the overlook, 
I think maybe that might be to some degree intentional just because it would have been such a big undertaking. It seems like something that they they maybe would have noticed. So I think that there is an attempt there to try and disorient viewers, but maybe not on the scale that a lot of people think that it is. And I do feel like that comes across, at least in your watching it. I think that they don't think that it be like it is, but it do. It do? Okay. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. That was my favorite assessment. (laughs) That makes sense. I can't argue with that. Okay, so, and then the final part, I guess, or at least one of the bigger things that I wanted to kind of look at is um, we play with the idea if this is a haunted hotel or not, or if it's all in Jack's head. So there's my question. Do you think that the hotel is actually haunted? Or do you think that it's just Jack going mad? And does your answer to that question affect how you classified the film? I don't think my answer would affect how I classify the film, but I also don't know. I think part of my issue is I don't know if Kubrick knows which one it is. <laughs> like that really irks me because for yeah, I agree. most of the movie, yeah, for most the of the movie, <laughs> It was giving Jack going mad, and then we just, we do have that, like, brief shot of Wendy seeing the dog oral sex scene. Like, so I, like, I don't, I don't know what to do with that. Like, I am fine with Jack going mad and Supernatural Child, or not Supernatural, but you know what I mean. And, but it just like it doesn't all tie together that well, and there's not enough of either side for me to really make a distinction. And it just feels like some of the elements that kind of lend itself to the haunted hotel feel kind of just like spliced into me. So I don't know. Uh, it made me laugh. I liked what you said about how he doesn't know. Um, I feel like this <laughs> is my my time to shine when talk, talking about tropes because I find that Jack is a lunatic, a lot like. Clark Griswold, right? He's a family man. <laughs> and he's going to take them on their holiday, right? It's really for work, but he's got a he's got an ideal picture instead of what it's, what it's going to be like. But you know, he doesn't take into consideration what the rest of his family think, a lot a lot like Clark and a lot like in those those movies. He's going to do whatever he wants, right? And they're they're described, those movies are described as a family who attempts to enjoy their holidays or plagued with continual disasters and strangely embarrassing predicaments, right? And they're all because of Jack and his 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 lunacy here, right? He is joined by wacky people. He, uh, like I said, what did I say? He ignores what the family wants. He lies about how he's feeling, right? We see that he's got all this stuff going on. He says, nope, we're fine. Uh, he has an, an interaction with a naked woman that he fantasizes about, which is another trope of all the uh, the vacation movies, right? <laughs> and, um, True. It ends, From right? Multiple outbursts. Yeah, multiple outbursts. Throughout the entire time, right? Little ones until it finally culminates in, in that big one with the, with the monologue, right? So I think I think Jack is just crazy. I think that's how it's supposed to be set up. Uh, I love the idea of the the haunted house, and I, I think that that should have been played on more. But yeah, I, I I just don't know. I feel like the the way to go with this is just have Jack be this this dude falling into madness. So I think it's scarier that way to me too. If it's just yeah. And that's why you, you you put all that together. If if we go that route, 
then this is a National Lampoon's Vacation movie. So heavy And hand. then I will be done after that. I had to eventually, so. All right. No problem. Done? Yes. No, those were my points. <laughs> well, I'm going to choose to believe that the hotel is haunted, but also that Jack is going mad. So two things. Can, it's a both and. Like, or and. What's the, what's the saying? You know what I'm saying. Yes, and. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Thank you. Yes, and. <laughs> like um, and I don't know that um you know either opinion like if you if you're on team hotel haunt haunt a lot or if you're on team everybody's going crazy cakes i don't think that that's going to affect my genre classification because again like the whole you know character arc of going insane is a classic horror trope and i think we can still argue it that way anyway yeah so i would say that from the standpoint of the King universe and everything, I, I believe that the entity that is haunting the hotel that is kind of tormenting Jack is very real. Um, but I think that that entity or entities is causing him to see things that are not real also. So it's a yes and no kind of thing for me as well but i i do believe that it's meant to be something real that's not just in his head yeah maybe that would have been a better way to phrase it is whether or not you think anything supernatural is going on at all in the film or not um i guess for me it's hard for me to not interpret this film through the lens of the book as try as i might obviously we discussed that a little bit earlier whether or not that works but because i came to the book first watching the movie my assumption always is that, yeah, I could see how it could work with the idea that it's cabin fever and everyone's kind of slowly losing it and not just Jack, but just Jack more dramatically. But I think that I prefer the interpretation that the hotel is haunted, that there is something supernatural at play within the whole film. I know people point out the idea of if there's nothing supernatural, then how did Jack get out of the freezer? But then you have to invent all these theories of how, you know, Danny actually did it but wasn't thinking about it or that Wendy's crazier than she seems and she let him out. Um, I think that the whole shining aspect in general, then there's the question of if you're saying nothing supernatural, then you're saying that the shining doesn't happen either, at which point then how do you explain the conversation between Dick and Danny and how Dick got called to the hotel in the first place? So I think that there's a lot more holes in the film if you just pull every supernatural element out of it and try and have it work. Obviously Jack's going mad. That's happening in either version of it. But yeah, I, I do go with the idea that there is something supernatural at play. And I think either way though, it still functions as a horror movie, even if you want to interpret it as there's no supernatural element at all. Yeah. I think the the question would be for me, if Jack Torrance didn't go to the hotel, would he have gone insane? And I think that the answer is no. Therefore, the place is the thing that causes the insanity and the descent into madness, et cetera. So it's got to be supernatural. I don't know. If I were at a hotel, like a giant building with just Matt for five months, I would 100% go crazy. That happens to me after like a weekend. I mean, that's what I'm saying. If you go, if you take your family on vacation, like <laughs> things are bound to happen. Matthew. It gets crazy quick. All right? We know how when dads don't have things, when dads don't have things going the way they want, you know, I'm sure we've all been on a vacation like that. 
Yeah. But there's a big difference between can't get out of the pajama pants for the next six <laughs> weeks and I'm just going to, you know, smash your face in with a rook mallet. <laughs> Everyone reacts to trauma differently, though. This is very true. I mean, and and, and what? it's subjective. Yeah, clearly for men of that time, the, the most traumatic thing they can do is to have to spend time with their family. You're oh, not clearly. wrong. They weren't used to it. It was a transitional <laughs> yeah. phase. They didn't have to do it in the 50s and 60s. Suddenly your 70s and 80s, like you should be at home and everyone's like, ah, oh, what the hell? As a whole society, we just weren't sure what to do with it. I was just going to say, he's also doing this family vacation with a zero drops of alcohol. That is painful. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, just as far as a review goes, did you enjoy this film? Um, is this your favorite version of The Shining or not? Where do you weigh in? As I stated, I did not read the book, and yet this is not my favorite version of The Shining. <laughs> I, like, Our description of the book. Yeah, I liked the description of the book better, I think. <laughs> um, I, now, I just feel like... Like I mentioned, I think the characterization in the film is so flat. It's really hard to understand these characters' motivations. I think the movie is scattered and not in a way that was like a deliberate inconsistency. I think the script is just messy. And I do like the cinematography. I do like the set. I do like the music. I think the performances for what is in the script for what they're working with are good. So I wouldn't say I don't like it, but I wouldn't watch it again for a while. Yeah, for me, it, it felt very weird because I hadn't seen, seen it in a long time, but we've watched a lot of very good horror movies having a, a horror movie podcast. And like, it really didn't feel like it held up for me. And I was like kind of I guess, shocked by that because I remember it being good and I just like, and I, and I feel like sacrilege saying that I didn't really enjoy it very much. And it makes me, I feel like I'm going to have my uh, credentials questioned again. But <laughs> I feel like it just felt like aimless in a lot of ways. Uh, and I think that that comes down to not following what I felt was important with the book. So I think like for me, I feel like Kubrick should have spent, I guess, more time like working on this script and less time on faking the moon landing, you know? Yeah, it would have really freed up his schedule. <laughs> and then all the time he had to spend putting references to the fact that he faked the moon landing in this film yeah, it probably exactly really drew a lot of his concentration <laughs> i'm glad we're on the same page with that one yeah exactly you know i'm right there with you we're good <laughs> they were like hey stanley do you think we should move the pens between scenes no, but uh, make sure Danny's got his Apollo 11 shirt on. <laughs> <laughs> People are going to know. They're going to need to see that. <laughs> Suckers. No, uh, he just pips, pissed off the props master and they were fucking around with him. That's all that was. <laughs> I like the book best. Does that count as a version? I have not yes. seen any other. Uh, okay, I'm going to go with the book. Book for the win. No, no surprise there. Um. I guess I would recommend this to people because I feel like it's one of those movies that you have to at least watch once because you're just not going to understand the experience until you experience it. It's like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, you know? Um, I like the film for what it is. I, I do think that it is a good, iconic film. I do 
like the book better, and I do wish that we could have got a film that was more on the level of, uh, like, Danny as the main character and having Wendy be more of a protagonist, somebody that takes action in the film and isn't just acted upon or the damsel in distress kind of thing. Um, so those are my, those are what I would prefer. Uh, and I like the book for that, but I do appreciate the movie for what it is also. I really do like this movie a lot. I mean, enough to go to the Timberline Lodge, which was, that place was not cheap. But, you know, uh, but I think a lot of it for me is that the book kind of props this film up for me. Because really what I want, and will never happen because of how iconic this film is, is what I really want is someone to basically be given the money to do a big budget extremely faithful adaptation of what the book actually is and honestly like if i'm gonna pick directors i want it to be mike flanagan as well since he did dr sleep but i just it's not it's never gonna happen so this is the shining film that we get and i guess i'm kind of willing to just accept that on its own terms for that reason so i do i agree with brianna i think it's one of those things where it's culturally significant so i think it's worth watching at least once just to kind of get what people are talking about and get what is being referenced in a lot of places because the shining gets referenced a lot and we've covered the cornetto trilogy and they love referencing it so i think seeing it is is worth doing um but i understand why a lot of people wouldn't connect with it and like i said part of my defense is that i i love the book a lot too and i i think yeah for if you're like a really dedicated film nerd there's a lot to talk about here too even if you've never even seen the book luckily no one can ever take the book away from you nope and they can try they can pry from my cold dead hands yeah, maybe we don't need the big budget i do like the idea and hannah and i are big flanagan fans as well I love him um but like maybe we don't need one maybe we don't need this adaptation like we're never going to get a good full it adaptation because no one no one has the the strength to do it <laughs> Yeah, they don't justice, know how to do say. that adult part of it. They just can't figure yes, that part out. They can't figure that out. And yeah, so maybe it's just we always have the books, though. It's true. And I think that's kind of, I guess it seems like Stephen King's attitude when it's all said and done, too, right? Is that they can do whatever they want with the films and maybe I won't like it, but the book will always be there. And that's that's enough. All right. Any other final thoughts before we wrap things up? I think I can make an it it uh, show. Yeah, <laughs> I believe I'm in up myself. for it. I think I can do it. I think the 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 part you have a problem with is obviously the uh, the orgy scene. <laughs> or yeah. I don't know if I should describe it as that. Um, I mean, I find it, it kind of is. Yeah, I find it incredibly critical to the story, but I don't know how you how you put it on film. But I would do it as you got to do it as a show, for sure. Well, they've got so, that uh, Welcome pitch. to Dairy show that's coming up, although it's not going to focus on what happened in the book. So that'll be interesting. I'm curious to see how that turns out. Yeah, maybe we'll have to watch that one. All right, well, then I guess we'll wrap things up. And just to say thank you so much, Hannah and Matt, for joining us. Um, again, we talked about it at the beginning, but where can our listeners find you on social media? Where can they listen to your show? 
We can be found basically wherever podcasts can be heard. We're on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, iHeartRadio, the whole shebang. We are also on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Horror Hour with the Hannas. And Twitter was uh, Horror Hour Hannah because uh, it's not, it's had to be that it short. Too long. Yeah, it was too long. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, Horror Hour with the Hannas. Listen, listen to all the places you find podcasts. We release new episodes every Wednesday. Awesome. And definitely check them out. Their analysis is a lot of fun. Uh, you guys talked about a lot of James Wan movies, which is kind of, I've seen them, but I haven't seen them as much. So that's been interesting listening to your takes on it and kind of just hearing more about it. So that's, I don't know, definitely worth checking out. We appreciate the listens and we appreciate you having us on. Yeah, no problem. Fun. Sorry for being goofy. I thought I had to, I had to throw a little bit of my personality in here though. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's good. We, uh, sometimes we're goofy. We're goofy sometimes, right guys? <laughs> Always. <laughs> <laughs> I was personally offended by your goofiness the whole time. <laughs> no. Listen, everyone watch the vacation movies, all right? Especially Christmas Vacation. The season's coming up. It's important. I, I maybe need to see that for the first time. So I'll, you're gonna get it. I'll you're, have to report back. You're going to watch it and then you're going to be like, I, I know what he was saying now. So <laughs> I'll re-listen I to promise. this episode. I'll finally, it'll all make sense. It'll all connect the dots. I'll finally understand the secret code within the shining that Kubrick was always getting at. <laughs> and if you found Matt's assessment irritating, you can dedicate or you can point any complaints to him on his separate socials. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Come at me. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of Visit Horror. And uh, we'll be back in two weeks where we will be discussing The Crow and whether or not we're deeply angry at Matt and Hannah. So we'll check it all out then. Let's go. <laughs> come at me. I'll come back on. I'll fight everyone. <laughs> all right. Bye. I've been right, Steve. Bye. Bye. I'm Matt. And I'm Brianna. And Red Rum. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us at Is It Horror? We post new episodes every other Friday. To stay up to date on all things Is It Horror, follow us on Instagram or X at Is It Horror Pod, or email us at Is It Horror Podcast at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show and you'd like to help support us, you can recommend us to a friend, follow and rate us on your podcast app of choice, or you can check out our store on Redbubble. In the meantime, stay safe and keep asking yourself, Is It Horror?